Welcome to Sherapy Sessions, Cutting Toxic Family Ties. My name is Dr. Sherry Campbell, and I'm your host. I am a leading expert in the niche of toxic family abuse, and although my show cannot substitute for therapy, it is a survivor-based show. In me, you're not only going to get an expert, but you're also going to get a survivor, as I have also survived toxic family abuse. I know how hard it is. The goal I have is to give voice to the voiceless, to provide skills to help you to protect your peace, to stand your solid ground, and to navigate and heal the heartbreaks caused by toxic family. Please have a pen and paper available to give voice to your thoughts as you listen to each show. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for your bravery. So let the healing begin. Okay, welcome back, everybody, to Sherapy Sessions Cutting Toxic Family Ties with your host, Dr. Sherry. You guys, we're going to have the coolest day today like ever. I'm doing my first interview, and let me tell you about this woman. First of all, she reached out to me, and not going to lie, I was probably a little starstruck with her. Her, who she is to me is, is something, someone you just never would think you'd meet. She is a Hollywood stunt woman. She's been stunting for Cameron Diaz, who wrote the, the forward to her book that we're going to discuss today called Glimmer. And she's done Uma Thurman, Taylor Swift. I've actually sent that meme of Taylor Swift. That's actually you to my boyfriend. Yes. Because I'm so clumsy and I'm like, oh my God, she's going to be on my show. So before I introduce her, I want to tell you, my community, why I have her on. You guys know that I tell my own story. I write from my own experience. So I feel like it's a survivor-based show. Yes, I have the PhD and I am the expert and we all love that. But what we think we love the most here is that we're all survivors. So Kimberly, and I'm just going to be bold because her book is so bold, was molested in her family by her grandfather. And that is not a topic that I cover in my own books because I was not directly molested. There was a lot of sexual inappropriate stuff that I saw and was said to me, which we will certainly uncover today. But I want to give the survivors in my community, Kimberly and her story, because every year, year to year, I have at least three people in my practice that have been molested. And so we're going to dive deep into this. And I really encourage you to get her book. It's available wherever books are sold. Again, it's called Glimmer. And, and, and it's, I can't wait to just unpack that word, even as a writer, the word Glimmer is just beautiful. So Kimberly, welcome to the Dr. Sherry Thank Show. Thank you. So give us me. a little bit of your bio. Tell us what an amazing, studly, incredible woman you are. Oh boy. So I've been doing stunts for 20 years now and started in my 20s. And my first film was my super ex-girlfriend doubling for Uma Thurman. And that was a big shock to me to sort of get in the business. I didn't even know it existed. And from then on, I've never stopped working. And I've been so blessed and gone from movie to movie to movie until I had my daughter and sort of slowed down for myself. Doubled pretty much every tall blonde in Hollywood. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Pretty much. Cameron Diaz wrote an amazing tribute to you in your foreword. And it felt so much like a tribute to me. So, you know, we all know who she is, but we don't know her heart. And 
knowing her heart a little bit is helpful too, I think, to the reader because the compassion that she shows for you and that you opened up so slowly in your story to her. I get asked this a lot in interviews, what, you know, obviously what inspired you to write your book? But I want to go a little deeper than that because I'm an avid journal writer and there are certain things that I see in survivors that we all seem to have in common. If our voice wasn't heard by the parents or by our family members, we tend to go find paper and then we kind of heal through our hands and we start a dialogue that it has to come out. And my journals ended up turning into books. Did you have a similar process to that? I did. My Aunt Pat, who's very prevalent in the book, she was a big journaler. And she, as you'll find out if you read my story, that she was actually the first one to come out against my grandfather, who was her father, when she was about nine years old, telling her mom she was being molested by him. And it wasn't sort of accepted or dealt with. And it was just kind of swept under the carpet and everything moved on, which is what enabled him to be able to go on and abuse more and more children until he died. And she was a big, she wrote all the time and wrote journals and tons and tons and as I got older, she we would write letters to each other, pen pals, and she really sort of pushed me to write. And I think part of that was because she knew that it was the only way that we were going to get it out in this family. And so she sort of turned me on to writing my feelings, writing my story, my memories, the things that had happened to me. And so I started doing that at a young age. I think it's so powerful because writing, not even typing, but actual writing, Yes. Um, I learned later in my life that it connects both hemispheres of the brain. The, the writing aspect distracts our logical brain so that our right brain is free to feel and to express and to gather and make sense of things. If you could possibly make sense of family abuse, let alone being molested. I find it fascinating that only 5% of all rapes are stranger danger. Mm-hmm. And what I see hands down in my practice is that the family always turns on the victim. Yes. And there's no support. And when we initially spoke, you've had a very similar experience, especially with your siblings. Yes. And it's so crazy that that happens because it makes no sense that that happens. And If you were to say from your experience why you think that happens, what from your experience could give you some sort of answer to that? I have my idea, but I want to unpack yours and then we can come together. Yeah, I will say that, you know, and in the book, I have sort of one sister that represents all of my sisters because I have three. And me and my older sister were very close in age. So we have similar stories and I won't tell hers, but... I remember sitting with her one day and because I've always been the truth teller and I've always been in everyone's face, like, let's talk about this. Why is no one really digging into this? Like, I want answers. I want to understand. I want to, you know, my childhood felt so lonely and so painful. And so when I became an adult and I could articulate what happened to me into words and I was speaking to basically the wall when I talked to my parents or my siblings and it just became really overwhelming for me. And I remember saying to my sister, what is it? Like, why can't you talk? Like, why can't we sort of heal and talk about this and move through it the best that we can? We don't deserve to sort of live in this pain. And she said to me, I feel like if I go there, I'll never come back. And those were her words to me. So the best thing to do is avoid and distance from the truth teller. Yes. Right. 
So whether it's sexual abuse or some other type of family abuse, us truth tellers tend to be the people that fracture the family. Yeah. So in toxic families, the truth fractures the family because the family functions in dysfunction. They want to function upon the lies and it helps them and it's their choice to stay in denial. And if they stay in denial, then they never have to look, they don't have to grow and they don't have to change. But nor do they understand the danger that they're bringing into the world because they're also not stopping any type of generational trauma from continuing on who they may attract into their lives that could pass that on, right? So I just admire your bravery and just welcome you into this family of scapegoats mm -hmm. of my community because so many of us were the truth teller and it the idea would be that the truth would set everybody free and mm -hmm. the, the uh, how excruciating and confusing the pain is when it does not do that and it does the exact opposite of that is so difficult to get your head around, let alone that so many therapists don't really know how to help you with that type of grief. Grieving the living, the living mm. dead is this thing that we have to grieve. And there isn't a real playbook out there for that. Mm. And it's this loss of a relationship over truth is so confusing when there's a loss of a relationship over a fight, a lie, <laughs> you know, something terrible happened and both can acknowledge it and you've lost respect for each other and you move on. That's one thing. But to see your sister in her pain and hear that through your story is that she is afraid that if she mm -hmm. goes down that rabbit hole, she won't survive it. Even though she's already here today and she's already survived it, she hasn't healed it, right? Yes. And Kimberly, you, you are healing this abuse in your life and you're going to help and are already helping so many others. I, I wanted to do, I never even considered interviewing someone on my show. I'm not going to lie. It's a content-based show. I'm trying to replicate me because my waiting list is, is down the street and it's overwhelming. The email flow is overwhelming. And, but this was something I felt like I just really had to do because I don't directly address this. Hmm. And I want my abuse survivors to be able to find somebody like you who's done this and has had to deal with the loneliness. So how do you deal with the, the fractures between yourself and your sister? So this older sister kind of dominates the others, it sounds like. Yes, 100%. And what's interesting about all of it is I'm sure if you were to have them in a room and ask them why they don't talk to me, they would have all of the reasons, right? Well, she said this or she did this, all of the immature, and who really cares, by the way, all of the immature things that they need to make themselves feel better for walking away from me and also not having to look at the real reason, right? So we have this, this big reason as to why they've really walked away, but in their minds, it's actually, well, Kim said this or Kim did this or you know, and that's for them that rationalizes it to make sense. Yes. Because I don't care what, you know, what I may have said, or, you know, I'm sure I've said things that hurt them. They've said things that hurt me, but we're sisters. And if you make a choice to not speak to your sister anymore, it's much bigger than her saying something. Oh, yes. Her, Especially you know, when your sister was raped. Yeah. As if this story serves you. I mean, yeah. this doesn't serve you. It doesn't make your life better. You know, it's, Coming down to when you scapegoat somebody, when anyone joins up in a smear campaign, they're joining from weakness. 
no one feels good being in a separate and divide. Mm -hmm. But when there's so much dysfunction and they think about ever looking at their truth and they've already seen how much punishment you've taken and how much you were trying to act out to see, like, can you please see, see me? Mm-hmm. Because they don't know what would be on the other side of not being in that dysfunction. And as they're looking at you, they cannot see your freedom. They cannot see. They see that you're outed and gossiped about. You're ostracized, right? Because mm-hmm. they're all doing this from weakness. When you are the scapegoat, it sure feels powerful to have a whole group doing the thing. I have an ongoing running smear campaign in the background of my life at all times. And I've really mm-hmm. learned to just not attend the drama but it's there and, and I, and it's a lot of work for them. Really. It's, it's, oh, yeah. you know, it's a lot of time and effort. And I just kind of drink my wine and think, wow, that picket line must be hot out there. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got it. I bet they need some lemonade. Okay. <laughs> right. Because it can really just takes so much effort because there's no truth. So to keep yeah. one going, you have to continually lie and make stuff up. I, it's exhausting. So I drink my wine and they pick it and they just, you know, have their little, I hate Sherry signs and it's exhausting. I feel sorry for them. Well, and then they have somewhere that, that they can put their energy, right? And, and that's in being angry at you or hating you for basically representing everything they don't want to look at. And so that is, that's what keeps them going, right? That's it is. Because well, look at her and look at what she mm-hmm. did. And this is, you know, I don't know what conversations have been had about my book. I do know that the minute I told my sister that I got a book deal, that was the last time I talked to her. And that was three and a half years ago. Yeah. So, so I, easier, I texted her. Yeah. <laughs> easier to focus on you. Yeah. Then to look at the truth. But here's the insanity. They're so focused on you because you have the truth. So it's just a lot of work for these people Mm -hmm. to be like, she doesn't have the truth. She doesn't have the truth. Oh my God, there's a book. She doesn't have the truth. It's rare to meet another author that tells their own story. And I'm one of the only experts that really actually does tell my own story Mm -hmm. rather than just the stories of a lot of other people. And so it's, it's so nice to have a little kindred spirit like you in telling your own story because my family certainly have their reactions to my books. And I, my first book I self-published and I lost my entire family over that book in a oh second. My God. And my mom helped fund it. So it wasn't just- She show. helped fund the book or the people walking away from you? The book, the book oh, itself wow. that they cut me off for publishing. So do you still talk to your mother? Oh, no, 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 no. We've been no contact uh, in seven years. No contact since that book. Yeah. And isn't it interesting, like the grief that comes with it that I didn't know I was going to experience? I'm like, why? This is so painful. Like, holy cow, painful. And excruciating. Yeah. And I think that's why so many people go back. And I think that's why you're like, you're saying about the therapy. I truly, you know, now connecting with so many people on a higher level, doctor wise, what I've learned is that there are so many people that are not equipped to be therapists and they're basically putting their own stuff on you. You know, like you were saying about, about going no contact and the reaction from therapists, I truly believe is coming from their own stuff. It is. I just, I was telling Kimberly before we started the show that therapy can work until it comes down to no contact. And it doesn't matter how egregious the abuses were, especially when you read Kimberly's story. It's egregious. I mean, it's, she was dissociating. She was not able to stay in her body. She didn't know what was happening. 
And when we first talked, I'm like, Kimberly, like you still had baby teeth. Like, (laughs) how can you be doing that when you're probably watching like Tom and Jerry and you have your baby teeth and you're not supposed to be doing those things and those things aren't supposed to be done to you? How could any therapist say that you can't have no contact? So in my new book, I write a lot about, I've got a new book dropping in March and I talk a lot about the, I call it no man's land. You've cut ties or you've, you've just had no choice. So you're there. And then for a few years, I was just dumbfounded. I was scared. I didn't know who I was. I couldn't believe how alone I was. I couldn't believe the hate storm coming my way. I was so confused that you'd cut me off for a book that you read and you helped fund. Like I could not get my head around what had happened and the abuses that I took post-separation abuse, secondary abuse for the first good five years. And they still trickle in today. They find certain ways to show me that I'm hated and all the things. And so Mm. it took me time and I call it no man's land because you're grieving someone who's alive and you're grieving a group of people that are alive. And in my previous book, Adult Survivors, I talked about nothing in there fit for my diagnostic and statistical manual of diagnoses. I'm not borderline. I'm not histrionic. I'm not narcissistic, but I'm extremely anxious. I fit a lot of ADHD qualities So I figured that my anxiety, I termed my own, coined my own term, foundational anxiety, a child that has no foundation. And then I used Eric Erickson's theory, trust versus mistrust is our first stage of life. It's pre-verbal, it's pre-cognitive, but it is not pre-feeling. We are Mm. feeling creatures. So you were born into a family where the abuse was already being passed down, even through your mother's body as you're in utero. and. The grieving that you're talking about is just, I think it's beyond the levels of awareness that many therapists have. And then they they don't want to be seen as someone who's breaking up families. God forbid, you're not breaking up a family. How can you break up a family that's already irretrievably broken? When you walk into a therapist's office and you're like, I was molested and I was unprotected. And that was... That was really painful to read how unprotected you were. When you write about that instance, when you're in the basement and he's starting to come at you and everybody's upstairs mm-hmm. and your mom did peek in mm-hmm. and call to you and it did stop that time, but that you were brought there ever or that you were put in his presence ever is it's hard for the reader to understand that a mother could so not protect their child, especially when your mother had been abused. And you had said in the book that your mom and you, your memory sort of came at the same time. And I think Mm -hmm. your relationship with your mom is, you know, tell us about where that is right now. She is the last one that I talked to, but it's changed immensely. She has a, a really lovely relationship with my daughter. And it's, it's really hard and it's getting harder and the healthier I get, the harder it gets. And I think that's something that we don't talk about either because the more work you do on yourself, and maybe this is why people get stuck and afraid to sort of step over that line and really do the work because you're like, then I lose all my attachments, right? Then you lose everyone you're attached to. Foundational anxiety. Terrifying. It's terrifying. And I think it's a subconscious thing too which is almost worse because we're not really aware that we're doing it. 
So with my mom, it's the more and more work I do on myself, the more I realize how basically neglected I was as a child. And, and then as an adult too, you know, my dad didn't believe me when I spoke about my abuse. And so then there was another like, you know, I don't care moment for me with my father. Mm -hmm. Like I'm coming out and speaking about my abuse. And he basically told my mom I was lying. And in adulthood now, he's just a narcissistic, really sad person. I feel sorry for him. I mean, honestly, he went to war. He had his own traumas, you know, and, but then you get to a certain point when you become a parent where like, I don't actually care. I had so much trauma in my life and I'm choosing a different path. And certainly you could have as well. Yeah. I always say to my following, there's no excuse for abuse. No, there's no excuse. I was horribly abused and I'm not walking around abusing my kid left and right or anybody else for that matter. I was never safe and I acted out like you did. I I was, I couldn't keep my truth in to save my life. It was coming out in every which way that it could. So I got labeled as the bad kid. She's dramatic. She's out of control. I was, I was failing. I was anorexic. I was yelling. I was doing all the things. And I had a sibling who was sort of a superstar athlete and whatnot. And my penny just wasn't quite as shiny. And he, to the outside world, was surviving. Mm, and and, and so be, because he looked good, then the family couldn't have been bad. I was just this bad egg that randomly showed up. So I don't know, between my dad's five marriages and my mother's four marriages, my brother just was different in the way that he experienced things. And he just hasn't turned out to be such a great person later in life. Um, big surprise. Not a big surprise. So I think that when we look at being neglected and unprotected, kids will start to get loud. Mm -hmm. Kids will start to get loud. And I think with your mom, as you continue to grow and she doesn't, because when I was reading your book, you have compassion for her because she's so, she's, it's like when you explain her the book to me, I see a little girl. I don't, I don't see a mom. I don't mm -hmm. see a woman. I don't see anyone strong. I, I see this child self. And I think that you feel in a way, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but like you kind of see her as she's smaller than you. Because I think your growth has has done something, but there's no amount of you talking to her that inspires her to meet you where you at, where you're at. And I think you have a liberation and freedom that she doesn't, and she's staying stuck in the child self as almost a way to not have to move past the desire for someone to fix it for her or to make it better for her. You know, you're doing the work, Kimberly. There is no one on God's green earth that can make it better for you, but you. And yes. we are totally unconsciously driven toward our own DNA. And I think it even goes down to quantum physics. I think that we are magnetically attracted to our DNA. We are drawn to it. When I treat kids that have been adopted, most of them want to find out who they are, right? Mm. By their DNA. Like what, what are my, I had great parents that raised me, but, but who am I, right? Yeah. That's sort of where we go with DNA. I think we should redefine DNA, give it a new acronym instead of uh, genetic family bonds that cannot be broken. I think it should be do not abuse. Mm. You know, it's a great acronym yeah. for DNA Yeah, because when you're being abused in your own family, the way that you were, and grandpas are supposed to be so safe, 
and Santa Claus and warm and crawl up in his lap. That's who he's supposed to be. And we learn that. We learn that whether we have a grandpa or not, we learn that through our television commercials, our movies, it's indoctrinated into us culturally. So we naturally feel safe around grandpa. And so as you're going through what you were going through, describe to us, you didn't really know what was happening and your body was so communicative. Can you describe some of that for us? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting because I never had a good relationship with him where my mom has this both sides where she will say, I loved him and he was patient and kind. I didn't know that man. He was a terrible person. And, and I learned at a very young age, how to disassociate, how to leave my body in order to deal with what was happening to me. And I knew that it was wrong. I knew that it was painful. He was also very physical with me. So there was a lot of like physical, like pushing and kicking and things that he would do to me to make me, I think, afraid of him. So I would mm-hmm. never say anything. And, and I was afraid of him. And so I just did a really good job of I could just leave my body and not mm-hmm. be there. And so when I have my memories, I feel like, or when I've had all of them, hopefully all of them, God only knows, it does feel like it's me hovering over myself, seeing, watching sort of what's happening to me. Cause I really do believe that that's where I was as a child that I sort of just left my body and I was kind of watching what was happening, but I wasn't, when I would leave my body, I was able to sort of, then I wasn't feeling it, you know, because my brain wasn't Mm -hmm. there sort of thing. Yeah. I I think I was knocked out once when I was young, I was going to do a cherry drop off a bar in clogs. (laughs) It was in third grade and the, the bar was wet. And Mm. so my friend wiped the drips off and it's metal. So the drips just come back. And I, I cracked myself in the back of the head. Oh, geez. And I was above my body and I could see my little red shoes and my blue pants, my red sweater. And they gave me salts and all the things I don't, didn't ever feel coming back in my body, but I, I was knocked completely out. Yeah. But what I think is interesting about the child brain is that it has not developed, you know, we're not fully developed brain-wise until we're 25. And I, I'm I'm just so thankful that with that child brain that's just still so closely connected to to another life pre-birth, that that you mm-hmm. were able to sort of get away from experiencing that pain because there's no way conceptually with your brain development that you can understand. I mean, press past, present, future consciousness doesn't even start to develop until 10, where you know there's a tomorrow and a yesterday. Mm -hmm. So when children are experiencing pain, they're experiencing it fully in the now. And there isn't an adult brain that can come in and do any type of deflection or anything. It's you have no choice. You're trapped in the now. And I think it's incredible that that it life saving for you in so many ways that you can leave that body and and yeah. separate from it and so but I find it so interesting your addiction to physical pain later mm-hmm. in life yeah do those connect for you like you left the pain oh. at the time can you describe to us how those connect to wanting physical pain later yeah. You know, and that's that's something that took me a long time to realize I was actually doing when I got into stunt work. It wasn't like I wanted to be in a space where I was, you know, a broken arm or where I couldn't perform. I wanted to always be able to perform, but I enjoyed a cut on my face or, a, you know, enjoyed something visible for people to sort of say to me, 
oh my gosh, she's hurt. Is she okay? It was, I think, just the words I've always wanted to hear in my life throughout my entire life that nobody was giving me. And so I found a way to get those words, whether they are from strangers or whatever. And I think I just needed to hear it. Like, are you okay? Are you okay? Because I wasn't okay. (laughs) And no one ever lumped in my throat. Yeah. It gives me a lump in my throat because um, it's so simple. Yeah. You and I both have daughters. Yes. And I cannot imagine not ever asking her if she was okay. Oh my God. It just, having her, she's 18. She just had her college orientation. Holy cow. Mm. But having (laughs) her, having her really is what made me know I had to walk away from my family because having her made me so clear how poorly I was treated. I was treated so poorly. I, I was treated, I was just treated so poorly. And there's just no, no asking if I was okay. When you get hurt, I used to fantasize about things like, mm. I wish that they would die and mm. that someone would see me at the funeral and they would, they would want me. Um, mm. I, I, little orphan Annie was sort of an, a transitional object for me. I, I never felt as strong as her. But I wanted someone to see into my life and like like Grace did with Annie and, and just pull her out of that pain. Yeah. And and being physical and being overtly hurt was your way of like, don't you see that I'm hurting? You know, in the book, you talk about how you threw yourself down the stairs and mm-hmm. really injured yourself. Mm-hmm. And they had walked in and your parents, I believe that's who walked in and they were like, oh, Kimberly, get yep. up. Mm-hmm. You're so dramatic and you were bleeding. You were unkind. I mean, it just blew my mind that they would just overlook this child. Let's say that you weren't even injured. Why not as a parent think, why would my kid oh, I completely. want to just throw herself down the stairs? That to me is like even deeper, like what's happening? I'm missing something. I care totally. about this person. And you never got that. No. And I think the saddest part for me and what really made me step away from my father, especially, was he would take that situation and talk about it all the time into my adulthood. You know, whether I had a new boyfriend or, you know, oh, gosh. Oh, oh, remember you know, when Kimberly threw herself down the stairs? Horrible. Yeah. A hundred percent. That's Mock what he would you. do. And and right. so my dad would do that all the time. And then I really started realizing how sick and demented my family really was. Yeah, that's not a funny thing that you did. It's not funny. No, not funny. You know, I went through a lot of that too, just mocking. Of my worst moments, I was mocked. And it was like, it was never let go. They just held me at the worst version of myself. And that worst version of me was begging and pleading and calling out like, don't you see how fucked up I am? Yes. I don't know. Do you want to help me? Like, that's really what was going on for me. So I think that so many of us just are so invisible in these families because the dysfunction is so intoxicating for them. They don't want yes. to look at it. They'd rather look at you being crazy. I think another thing that a lot of survivors have in common is our eating disorders. Yes. Tell me what you think your eating disorder, how did it serve you? Like if you were to look back at it now and if it had a purpose that served you, because it took me a long time to figure out my eating disorder, but I would love to see, because this is another thing that I don't talk much about. I mention it in my books, but I don't talk about the severity of, of what I did. 
I think the eating disorder for me was control. And I was super skinny as a kid. So it wasn't about calories or food or anything, but it was about the one thing in my life that I could control. I could control whether I ate or not. I could control what I did with the food once I ate it. And it was something that I just could have a relationship with aside from everybody else. And nobody knew it. It was like my little secret, something I did on my own. And it wasn't about the calories at first. It then sort of morphed into that Mm -hmm. because of my life, but it was definitely a control thing. Yeah. I, um, I was an Olympic hopeful ice skater. And so I, yeah. So I didn't develop really, like I didn't get my period till I was almost 17. So (laughs) then I got it and uh, mine was insane. So they put me on the pill and the pill put 25 pounds on me. And then I was getting comments from my mother about being fat and and other things. Mm. And so I'm very afraid to throw up. Like I'd rather be stabbed in my face than throw up. Mm. So I got into at the time, because I'm I'm old, <laughs> was fat-free back then. And so I yeah. started obsessively counting fat grams and I would spend hours at the grocery store. And I got down to almost nothing. And I was wearing, I lived in Vail, Colorado. And so I, I would pack long underwear under my pants to hide my weight loss. And I was mm. living on honey. I didn't know that when you starve, you crave sugar. So I grew mm. hair, like little peach fuzz on my back. I was so emaciated. And I would lick potato chips and not eat them. Wow. And I would I would watch my mom try to feed me. And I'd put food in my mouth and I'd take it out and put it in a napkin. And I was like, I'm juking her. I am getting her. And That's my so funny, word, Sherry. Did we, did we have the same life? I did the same thing. Did you really? I used to put it in a napkin at dinner and then hide it under the radiator that was behind me. And then my mom found it. I know my, my mom, I, I was upstairs doing something in my room as a kid. And I hear my mom scream my name, Kimberly Shana Murphy. And I'm like, Oh my God, she found it. And I went downstairs because she had the vacuum on. I went downstairs and sure enough, she took the cover of the radiator off, you know, then the, the, we lived in New York. So it was like that old school radiator. (laughs) Yeah. And all of these food was just stuffed under and there were ants everywhere. And it was like this whole thing. And that's what I did with my dinner. That's what I used to do. Yep. I've never met anybody else that has done that but me. So we that's incredible. Yep. I would spit it all out in napkins. And then I'd wait for her because she'd get busy, start cleaning, and I would just go throw it all away. And I would leave like I got her. And at school, I would watch other people eat and I'd be like, oh my God, they have no control. I would say that it saved my life in the fact that my ability to be good or bad was now no longer under anybody's control, Mm. but it certainly put me into a bad relationship with my body and food that I still struggle with even to this day because my head is like a calculator and I can't unlearn or unthink the way I did. And so lots of things still in those are going to always be healing for me in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, but I did try to go back and think that saved my life actually. And I'm glad it was that and not drugs or, or something else. Right. Yeah. And it did give me control. And on some level, even today, I will never allow myself to get out of a certain range of anything because I can't love myself if I do. Is Mm -hmm. that healthy? I don't know, but I'm going to try to look at it from a different vantage point and give it a new thought, which is, you know what? I'm always going to be healthy and I'm never going to maybe be free. Yeah. Like other people could be, but I will at least know that I I can't I will never let myself down in this area. 
right? So my self-worth is dependent on it. And that's, that's a wound that I came out of my childhood with is this really bizarre relationship with food. And I think that, you know, that's something that's really important too, to what you're speaking about is that the thing I've been struggling with most, I think just with social media in general, because I've never been on it this much or just promoting the book and everything is there are so many people out there where I like to call it that claim that they have arrived. (laughs) That's what I like to say. Arrived where? (laughs) You know, when you see their posts or their, you know, they say something or they're under their name, it says spiritual leader or whatever the heck. Mm -hmm. And so we get this false narrative that if we haven't gotten to this place where they're not at that place, it's just what Mm -hmm. they're promoting on the internet that we haven't, that we're not healing. And I, I think it's really important to just acknowledge that when you've been through something really horrific in your life, that you're healing forever and that Mm -hmm. there's different stages of it. And that we also can slip back into bad habits and that's okay. And we need to, I think, just have more dialogue around that because it's not like you arrive at this place and you're healed and everything's perfect. It's just not, it's just not Mm -hmm. what it is. No, I have so many clients coming in and they'll say, I just, I want to be healed. And I tell them, okay, you have two choices. You can get a lobotomy and you can get rid of your vagus nerve, your amygdala and your hippocampal areas. Mm -hmm. You can do that. Okay. You won't function at all, but you'll be healed. Or you need to turn it into a verb. Healing Mm -hmm. is a verb. You will be healing forever. In in my new book, I, I go through little Sherry, present day Sherry and future Sherry, because I was writing in my journal and I just felt like I just could not get a hold of my child self. Like she was, Mm. she was a terror. And I blamed her for a lot of things. I blamed her that I wasn't lovable. She was needy. She, she, uh, I felt like I couldn't control her. She was always triggered. And after going through that process, she's the only one that's ever told me the truth. Mm -hmm. And you know what? She pestered the hell out of me until I decided that I was going to listen to her and I was going to make her a real part of my life. She's my real superhero, that one. Oh yeah. And I I don't, I hope she never heals because you know, she's helped me turn insecurities into superpowers. She helps me to know that I am, my default is always fear. I wake Mm -hmm. up anxious and I have to reset of course I wake up anxious. I woke up every morning terrified by the complete lack of predictability, stability, and moodiness of the two people that I called my parents. Right. So I have foundational anxiety, which is a term I had to coin because Mm -hmm. at my very foundation, I was raised in fear. Right. And so I have to reset every morning to go from fear to something else. And if I didn't have those triggers and I, I would never have written my books, I wouldn't be having this talk with this beautiful human that you are on the other side of me today. I wouldn't have a huge following online. I would I would not have all these things. Every trigger is useful. Yes. Every trigger we have is useful. It's another step up that mountain. I think the hardest thing for me about healing, Kimberly, is that it's narrow at the top. Mm, very. There, there, there are, it's very narrow. It's, it's very hard. Uh, it can be very lonely. So then I can see people not wanting to do more because it's like they feel so alone in the healing journey because they haven't found a tribe or they haven't found kindred spirits, you know? And when we share like this, you and I, we are opening the door for other really lonely people and that healing shouldn't be, it needs to be a verb. Love should be a yeah. verb, 
right? It's yes. no one's arrived. I hope I don't arrive. I want a full inbox when I go. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And I think that also speaks to my mother in the sense of what I've noticed about her and why she can't take the next step into healing is because she's still in relationship with all of my sisters, right? She still goes to New York, sees all of them separate from me. I guess they all pretend like I don't exist. I'm not really sure what goes on. Mm -hmm. But if my mom was really stepped over and started the real journey of healing, she wouldn't be able to have the relationship that she has with them now, right? Because she's seeing things in a totally different way. And so I think that keeps her where she is. Because she, I agree. And I think that yeah. some of that makes it hard to watch her be around your daughter. Yes. That so is something I can that I'm really so dealing with. Yeah. Empathize with that. Yeah. Because in some sense, it makes her unsafe. Yes. Because she's mm-hmm. not owning and living in the truth. truth. Mm-hmm. So it's like putting someone dangerous or unconscious around your child who, who knows, right? I know, I know that my mother as a grandmother was just petulant and I'm not her favorite. And she likes this person better than me. And I'm just watching this immaturity. Like I I don't even, I can't relate to you. I just, just get away from her. Mm, (laughs) Just go away from her. And I don't feel safe around having you with her because you're emotionally out of control and you can't regulate and no amount of conversation or communication with you has ever made things better. So it is, it's a vulnerable feeling when you're like, oh my gosh, this is, this doesn't feel safe to me because she's not well. Yeah. And she yeah, can just and that, go disappear you in a, in a, on a trip to New York. That's bananas. That's, and that's where I'm getting to at this point. I think the past few years, it's been really hard. I've lost a sister, another sister, another sister, my father, some by my choice and some by their choice. Regardless, it doesn't really matter. We're losing each other for the same reason. It's because I'm, I'm wanting more for my life. I'm wanting more for my daughter. I don't want my daughter to grow up in the toxicity of, and that's what I say too. It's like, you get to a point, I think, where you either cross over or you don't. And with my family, yes, there was sexual abuse. Now it has sort of integrated into my family in really toxic behaviors, in everyone just saying mean things to each other whenever they feel like it, as long as they say, I'm just kidding, it's okay. You know, that whole thing. And so so what they don't realize is I think that they live in this space where they're like, well, you know, no one's sexually abusing anybody, I think subconsciously. But yeah, that's fine and great, but you're abusing people in a different way through mm-hmm. your words, through your actions, through your non, you know, you're not able to fully live in the truth. And my one sister said to me, when I took my another sister, when I told her that I was writing the book, she said to me, you're going to ruin all the children's lives. And wow. at that time in my life, I felt like I needed to sort of prove to her and show her. Now I don't mm-hmm. give a crap, but I did at that time. And um, I've been there. what I realized was, no, I'm actually saving all their lives because this book will be here way after I'm gone. Yeah, um, It will be basically a dictionary for them to go to, to understand what the heck they were raised by, you know? And not only is it going to save the family's life, but it's going to save the lives of everybody who reads it, especially those that have been molested. Yes. You know, it's, it's the detail that you put in this book And I think this is so interesting. When I was watching all the Larry Nassar girls, I watched every one Mm -hmm. of those girls on trial. Kyle Stevens just touched. She was the non-gymnast. She was the neighbor whose parents Mm -hmm. didn't believe her. And, you know, it's like I was listening to her and her father committed suicide at the knowing that she was right and not lying. 
and and and, it, uh-huh. and the truth was living around them the entire time. And mm. what I love about the truth is is it just doesn't go away. And so as much as they want to live in denial and they want to abuse and be passive aggressive and play all these emotional gaslighting, I'm joking. Joking down's a mm. cut down, let's just be clear. And yes. they're going to treat their children that way. Lies eat the host. They yeah. eat the host. They don't touch the truth. When I watch my smear campaign, I and I watch the people and I'm like, oh, God, you're looking old. Like you're out there mm-hmm. and beating down in the sun and you're not changing me. And I went through trying to like, no, it's my story. It's not about you, mom. It's not about you, dad. It's not about you, brother. It's it's about me. It's my story. Well, nope, you're writing this about me. You're trying to humiliate me. I just wanted to be seen, goddammit. Like mm-hmm. I was writing my story for me. Uh, my story is not about exploiting anyone in my family. Neither is yours. Yeah. You're writing yes. about what it was like to be so invisible. And one of the things I just want to touch on when, before we close, is this went so fast, is Grandma Jen. Oh God, yeah. The way that you describe, look at, I actually have goosies. Kimberly and I can mm-hmm. see each other. I actually have goosies. Time stopped for me reading mm-hmm. the part of your book when when Aunt Pat was like, Grandma Jen's going to hear this. We're going to go do the things. And you got there first. And you're like, this is not. I just, your gut was like, mm-mm. And you walk in and you describe the scene like it's in slow motion. Mm. The ring around, his wedding ring around her neck clanking on the glass and his Mm -hmm. war photos. You walked into your abuser being a hero and you knew from all of the paraphernalia, the ring and all the things that she was nowhere near being willing to hear you. And the way that that ended with the way that she apologized, her faux apology, I think was, for me, I felt inspired by your reaction to that. Like, I'm going to put this to bed now because I now know from this moment, there is no communication. There's nothing healthy that's ever going to happen here. And it's done for me. Can you describe that moment for, for my listeners in the book? Yeah. You know, my grandmother was, now I can look at her and say she was a complete narcissistic psychopath because there was times in my childhood that she saw things happening and she never did anything. And so she just loved him. And the fact that he did what he did didn't matter to her. What mattered to her is that he gave her this on the outside, really good life where she mm-hmm. could wear, you know, he, he made good money and she wore great clothes and she got her hair done and her nails done. And that's all that mattered to my grandmother ever was image, the image of her, the image of the family. As long as we looked good and we were put together, it didn't matter what was happening behind closed doors. And I think that's a way with that way with a lot of families that are hiding generational abuse. Yeah, I think um, the most shocking part, and I want your permission. I mean, it's in your book, so it's going to be yeah. public, but I just, you know, just care about you as a human being. But I would love to just mention what he gave you and her response to that. Do you know what I'm yeah. talking about? Yes, I do. Is that okay? You're comfortable? Yes. Okay. So yes. Kimberly's grandfather gave her herpes by the age of eight or something. Yes. And Grandma Jen goes, well, I didn't have herpes. And when I first talked to Kimberly, I was like, well, that's because he wasn't having sex with her. Correct. And and Kimberly confirmed that. And then there was a letter that he wrote admitting everything but mm-hmm. intercourse. And so even in that letter, 
you were left out. And that was one of the most heartbreaking, like it just makes me get a lump in my throat. (sighs) Just one of the most heartbreaking (laughs) moments of that book, because I just see you and I don't know how a stranger can read your book and see you so clearly and they won't even look at it and they won't read it and they won't see your pain. So I just want you to know that your readers see you, Kimberly. And I just am so happy you're still here, that that you're still on this planet is nothing short of like literally a miracle because what you've gone through is so bad and people don't want to believe that these things happen in families. And my purpose in this life that I'm turning my predators into a purpose is to tell everybody that these things do happen. Healthy, sweet communication doesn't fix these things because you can't reason with unreasonable human beings. And that that part in that letter wasn't there and it didn't acknowledge you. Broke my heart because... You deserve at least that. He left with his middle finger up, still in denial. Well, you know what, Kimberly? He met his maker. He did. He met his maker. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And I just just appreciate that you were so willing to be so vulnerable because so many survivors don't, there's so much shame like around their story that they don't tell. They don't tell the details of what happened. And it's not that they have to write a book or tell everybody, but I think it's important they tell someone, anyone, so that they can get it out. In your book, you talk about there was some bulimia, right? And Mm -hmm. I actually Mm -hmm. almost drowned uh, on vomit when I was really young. So I was super scared Mm -hmm. to throw up. So I would actually binge through exercise. But can you say in your words, like you did in the book about what the bulimia was? It was like you getting him out. Yeah. When I, I think that's, that's how, how it you started. It. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's how it started was when I would have a memory, I would then binge and throw up because I was physically ill by the memory of what had happened to me. And there's so much confusion too, when you just have memories in general, and then you have a family who doesn't want to hear about them. And so that was just my way of sort of, it was kind of like a ritual that I would do. It was like mm-hmm. getting him out of me. I have to say in in the most one eating disordered person to another is that makes so much sense to me. Yeah. And I'm happy that at that time, I'm not happy for your body, but I'm happy that at that time, because no one would hear your words, which Mm -hmm. word vomit, right? They wouldn't hear that. I'm just happy that in some way you were able to feel, feel any type of getting that out. And that doing that that way isn't shameful, but you weren't left with another way. If no one's going to hear you, you weren't left with another way. I didn't intentionally starve myself. Mm. I just, I just did. I didn't even know I was anorexic. I had no clue what I was doing. I just wanted to feel some sense of power or control over my own self-esteem. And it did save my life at that time. Mm -hmm. And I just feel that your story is so raw and real. And you're, you're even willing to talk about how breastfeeding freaked you out or when you gave your, your current husband, your journal. And you're like, Mm -hmm. if you're going to love me, be warned. (laughs) I just, I got to that point. I got to that point where I was like, here, just read it and let me know if you want to move forward. (laughs) Yeah. And then you kind of come back and you're like, so like, where are we at? You know, (laughs) or like the way that you would set up a room, you know, when you first stayed the night with him and Mm -hmm. he took the side of the bed that was for, you know, closest to the door. And that's usually where you'd sleep. You know, in my Mm -hmm. new book, I talk a lot about transitional objects and 
things that, that we use outside of us, stuffed animals, blankets, movies, songs, books that help us give us the parenting that we never got. And you would be like, okay, well, if I'm close to the door, you know, then I can escape. And, and you were finding these ways to resolve yourself because you had not one, zero compassionate adults that stepped in to take care of you and, and be concerned with your, with you being okay. And then yeah. when your mom took you to that therapist, I almost mm -hmm. threw up myself and I don't vomit. She yeah. doesn't know you at all. She no. doesn't even allow you to develop any sort of trust in her. And she's probing you for things. I mean, I even want your permission. I read your damn book because <laughs> I want to make sure that you're never re-wounded in any way because you deserve to be treated like that with the you're intent so to not re-wound. Your mother mm -hmm. should be doing that. Your siblings mm -hmm. should be doing that. That's how people should treat you. That's how yeah. you should have always been treated. So thank you. I just want to thank you so much, Kimberly, for coming on to my show. Thank and you. My very first interview and having this open and raw dialogue. I, I hope everyone goes and buys your books. Please tell everyone where to find you and follow you and see you and all the things. I only do Instagram. I'm very, I just can do one social media thing. So I'm on Instagram with the longest handler on the planet, Kimberly Shannon Murphy stunts. <laughs> yes. Kimberly Shannon Murphy stunts. And I will make sure to have all of those things tagged when we start promoting the show and all of those things. And what a great interview. I really enjoyed Thank having you. you on. And I just think you're incredible. You're saving lives everywhere, including your own. You're so inspiring. And I think for people who are like you, what last advice would you give someone that's like, okay, Kimberly, I'm inspired. I've lived a very similar life. What do I do? What advice do you give for them? They've never, let's say that they've never told their secret. What advice could you give them? Start writing it. I think that's the first step. And then, you know, even if you say it aloud to yourself in a room, you know, saying it aloud gives us so much power. It makes the truth real. You know, we can be thinking it in our heads and know it in our heads, but actually speaking it out loud, even if no one's listening, you're listening. And that's really important. And I think just really kind of going inside of yourself and asking yourself what you need, because no one ever did that for you, is, is really where it all starts. Yes. And knowing that you have to make yourself know through practice that you're worthy of having those yeah. needs met. I always find it interesting when people are like, you just need to love yourself. <laughs> um, uh. Well, it's interesting because we learn that we're lovable by how our parents loved us. So yeah, I didn't yeah. have that. I was hated. My mom hates mm -hmm. women. So, mm. Mm. so loving myself has been a really beautiful journey yeah. and it has shifted my life, but it is a daily practice and it is something I have to continually be like, no, 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 you're worthy of this and mm -hmm. you don't have to suffer to have it. Yeah. So a hundred percent. Thank you so much, Kimberly. I'm so glad. Thank you. You're welcome. Me too. Okay. We have the same life. It's okay. Yes. Until next time, my brave hearts, we will reconvene in a couple weeks with a regular share pre-sessions and moving on in our stuff on toxic family. Till then, be well. Well, brave hearts, that concludes our amazing share pre-session for the day. Please sign up on my email list at drsherrycampbell.com so that you can be in touch with me and see what's going on in terms of what I'm offering soon, what books are coming out, etc. Talk to you in a couple of weeks.